You're listening to the Mentors for Military podcast with your hosts, Robert Gowan, Rudy Lindsay, Mike Pritz, and Kat Kalin. This podcast episode was taped on the evening of 6th April. While we were taping this podcast, we had no idea that our country was sending 59 Tomahawk missiles to Syria. We learned about these events after taping this episode. About this, I mean, I woke up this morning jumping up and down. I just love talking with my military family, you know. Hi, Mike. It is so awesome to, to meet you via Skype. I've heard fantastic things about you. And like I was saying to Robert, you're such a vessel of knowledge. And uh, we are so lucky. Our military is so lucky that we've had you all these years. And wow, uh, I'm you. definitely I'm, looking I'm, forward to I'm flattered and rain. quite humbled. <laughs> <laughs> that you say such nice things because the truth is uh, is not the same. And Robert probably built me up way too much. No, not at all. You know, as uh, Robert and I were talking about this topic yesterday, actually, there's just so much ignorance, unfortunately. And uh, that's why we need, um, you know, military personnel like yourself to help educate not just our military, but everyone in general, civilians included, especially with what's going on right now in the world, you know, especially with international and current affairs. It's really important to have um, leaders like yourself be able to uh, educate the masses. Yeah. You know, one of the things I, of course, was talking to her about, Mike, is that with you being a history teacher now and the fact that you love history and, of course, being in special forces, one of the things you guys do is immerse yourself with indigenous forces and get to learn culture and people and those types of things in which, of course, I know you did a lot within Afghanistan and other deployments and locations and such. So with Sammy and her background, her family coming from Afghanistan, and of course now she's a military officer, former enlisted, I thought it would be really cool for us to talk about so many different topics that you know are affecting us here today and try to hopefully educate some of the, the individuals that might be listening about current affairs, things that happened in the past and those types of things. And I know that was something that was real important to you as well, Mike. Yeah, it is. And I, you know, I, with my students, even I, I teach a human geography class as well. And, and culture is very, a, a very important aspect of, of any type of geography. We have cultural geography. But, you know, particularly with Middle Eastern cultures, there's a, I think today a misconception uh, amongst a lot of mainstream Americans. And it comes from the media and it comes from heck being at war for so long in two different countries dominated by the religion of Islam. But I, I think that culturally, you know, I've lived there a lot, Robert. You, you and I know this. I lived, Sammy, if you don't know, I've spent several uh, years in and out of Iraq and Afghanistan. And my last assignment in the Army, I worked as an advisor to the U.S. ambassador to Lebanon. Uh, so I, I spent a lot okay. of time. I got, lived in Lebanon. Where did you right. live in Lebanon? Where? I was in, I was in Beirut. I was um, actually there for a while. I absolutely am in love with that country till this day. It is day. my favorite um, place I was in the world. Years. Me too. I absolutely love Lebanon. It's, I have such a beautiful experience there. Excuse me. And um, I was there for a year and uh, I studied at uh, Lebanese American University for a little bit. And uh, I really immersed myself in the local culture and uh, got involved with just basically uh, different attorneys and different political uh, parties, like just by monitoring the situation over there. It was a really fantastic experience. I got to see all different sides from the Maronite Christian side to the to the Muslim side. And uh, it was it's one of my favorite countries in the whole wide world, just like as as you were mentioning. I think it's fantastic. And I, I use Lebanon. You know, honestly, there's a lot of a lot of lessons in the classroom where you have three different 
and distinct cultures, two of them Islamic, uh, separated by Sunni and Shia. And then you have, like you said, right. the, Maronite, the Maronite Christians and, and a lot of outlying uh, parties, over, over 100 political parties within the, the country of Lebanon. Right. Somehow, as much as, as us in the Western world look at that uh, as being dysfunctional, somehow for them it works. I mean, the lights come on, uh, the trash is picked up, all the things that people take for granted in some areas of the world of less developed countries seems to happen in Lebanon. And, and it's uh, it's just very... Look, right. Look at myself today with all the electronic issues I was having to connect right. with my voice. <laughs> oh, it was right. just like, okay, load shedding, lights shut off, the electricity shuts off, whatever. They have found happiness in the simplest of things. And you'll see the same thing as you were in Iraq and you were in Afghanistan as well. And um, so, um, as uh, Robert was mentioning, my ethnic origin, my heritage in Afghan, my parents immigrated from Pakistan. They were born and raised in Pakistan, and uh, my um, great-grandparents were Afghans. So uh, we're 100 percent by blood Afghan Pashtuns, and I was born here in the United States, and I come from generations of military. So it was just embedded in my DNA to join the military. There was no doubt about it when it happened. It was just, you know, I just happened to have been born in the United States and this is my country, so I serve this country. But it's just something that being a female <laughs> and being of the Muslim religion on top of that, it's um, something unheard of. Something else that's unheard of, I think, is uh, someone of the Muslim religion going to a Catholic school for most of our adult life. How did that work out for you? The best schools uh, from where I come from, I'm from Boston. I was born and raised over there, and then we ended up moving to California afterwards. And uh, I've been living in California for the past 12 years or so. I absolutely love it. I mean, I'm from here now. And the best schools, like I said, were the Catholic schools. And then afterwards, I went to Boston University for my bachelor's and my master's degree. And I enlisted at, um, into me from New York. And I unfortunately went to the wrong recruiter who, instead of sending me off to OCS, sent me <laughs> the enlisted route. But it turned out to be the biggest blessing in disguise because, you know, I am, like uh, Robert said, I am a prior enlisted NCO. I finished my contract, my enlisted contract, and then I came back in as an officer into the medical corps. So I learned all my leadership, all the skill sets and everything that were developed by being enlisted because you're thrown out into the field. You have to deal with the people, with soldiers. You have responsibilities of sol uh, you know, responsibility of soldiers' lives. So it was something that brought out my inner potential, that strength that I knew that I always had. And you having, you know, lived in Afghanistan and and uh, connecting with the local population, you know for a fact that we are by blood warrior people, and we're strong and we're we're very pig-headed, stubborn people. That you know, it's sort of like. No matter what happens, we always somehow find a way to survive. Yeah, I think it's pretty amazing some of the, the history that you just described there. I mean, because of having generations of serving within the British military, coming here to the States to find, you know, new freedom and, and different opportunities. And then, of course, you taking advantage of that and using your experiences and stuff to also educate others uh, I think it's been pretty amazing. Thank you. I really appreciate it. I was telling a, a friend of mine uh, just this morning, I said, you know, this is something that this courage and bravery that I knew I had inside of me. I grew up 
very shy and quiet and um, I just was looking for some sort of a, a way to bring out that potential that I knew that I had inside of me. And that's where the U.S. Army came into play. I remember boot camp. <laughs> I don't look like the typical um, girl of uh, African heritage. And uh, I remember they all thought I was Italian or whatnot because of my last name. And then there was one person, just like you, Mike, that actually had experience um, with Afghan culture. And so they were like, nope, she's Afghan. And that was it. <laughs> that was it. That was the way for them to be like, okay, what are you doing here? And I said, I'm here just like everyone else, here to serve my country and here to protect the citizens of this country. Regardless of whatever my personal opinions are, it doesn't matter. I'm here to serve and protect the people. I'm here to defend the innocent. And that's just, that's always been my opinion when it has come to the military. I think that's a great opinion, Sammy. I just want to comment on that. I mean, I've served presidents all the way back to Reagan. And and Robert served all the way back to Lyndon Johnson. So, <laughs> so, but I but I think if you look at it historically, you know, I, I think that we see administrations change, right? Um, and and the way the political opinion in the United States shifts from left to right or right to left, back to the center, it, it changes over time, uh, and it changes about every eight to ten years. But systematically, the military is some is an institution that has executed what it was asked to do, uh, despite who the commander in chief or the majority ruling party of the government is. And it's something that works very well in this country. And it's something that doesn't work in a lot of other places that I've experienced. Uh, so I think that's I mean, it's great to hear how patriotic you are. It's great to hear that you wanted to to serve your country. And, and I, I'm really appreciative of that. Uh, I'd like to kind of hear how other people have received you. I, I've got I've got uh, Muslim students in my classroom, and I've, I've got classes that are primarily made up of military kids. So a lot of these kids don't come from the same background. Their parents don't have the same experiences uh, living inside of Islamic cultures I have, where I wasn't confined inside of a FOB base or, or inside of security walls. I was able to go out and experience the culture and the people and, and to see multiple sides of, of, a, of a national culture. So the challenges I see in the classroom are trying to introduce and, and, and introduce those cultures, those diverse perspectives to a population that isn't always receptive to that. And I wonder if you experienced some of that yourself being Afghani. Absolutely. Like I just mentioned a little bit ago, I'm American. I was born and raised here, but I have lived all over the world. I've lived in Lebanon. I've lived in uh, Saudi Arabia, which I will talk about that a little bit later in this in this podcast about Wahhabism, which is the true uh, corrupter and fund, you know funder of terrorism, uh, financer of terrorism. Excuse me, but I have faced a lot of different you know suspicions. I guess you could say, uh, particularly from fellow Muslims who say to me, "Why would you join the military when they kill our people?" That's the number one question that I get. And I always respond that I always respond to that question with simply, I am not a politician. I have nothing to do with politics. I joined the military because as they say, there's that saying, if you can't beat them, join them and, you know, help people that way. And that's what I have been doing the past 10 years that I have been in. I have been on countless humanitarian missions and whatnot, and that's the number one reason why I joined the military, to work on humanitarian missions and uh, now medical missions, which is, which is my goal. For me, it doesn't matter 
what the person's race or religion is. A human is a human at the end of the day, and we all have to remember our innate humanity. And for me, it's always been about, well, I have this wonderful platform, which is the military. I've had the best training. And as my commander, that is, is the commander of the unit that I'm at right now that I belong to, he told me, we are taught to, to help each other. And, and we need to, with all the training that we've, we've been given, we need to go out there and help others. That's the, that's the number one reason why most of us soldiers enlisted, to be able to help others, to be able to help our country, to be able to help humanity. At least that's why I enlisted. What has been your viewpoint on military deployment to Islamic countries? Absolutely. I regularly travel to Islamic countries. And the thing is, is that majority of the governments, we are allies with them. So we are allies with Pakistan, with Afghanistan, with Iraq, with with their armies. They come over here to the United States and they receive their training from us. And over there in general, we're training their their military. So the way I, I look at it is that, and the way that I tell others is that we're in this fight against terrorism together. So it, it really, it goes back to the whole concept of we're all humans and this is a fight for the survival of humanity. And it goes back to the whole good against evil and we're allies in fighting terrorism together. Well, Mike brought up a good point at the very beginning about the different cultures within Lebanon. And then, of course, you look at all of what you just mentioned there. But there, there's also this, this different element, of course, that we've been fighting with ISIS that I think people get confused about the religious aspect and then those who are actually using it to the extreme. And maybe this would be a good right. time for us to kind of talk about what you just mentioned with the military and the differences within the different you know, countries that are there that we're, we're serving with and helping support and such, it would be maybe a good time frame to kind of talk about those differences to, to educate individuals as well. Well, I, I'd like to add that, sadly, Islam has been used as a scapegoat for dirty politics. This all stems from politics. It has nothing to do with religion. And uh, you'll see that the statistics are proven that ISIS has killed more Muslims than they have any other religion or race. I think I would add to that. I would change the word politics to power. And I, I, right. would, think, I would think that people who are trying to, not broker power, but people who are trying to establish themselves and, and maintain power over other people as population controls, what we're seeing going on in Syria, what we're seeing going on uh, in northern Iraq right now. But I think that's how religion is is being misused. And there's a lot of people, particularly well, I, I can't even I can't even limit it to Sunni or Shia because there are, there are extreme uh, political parties and extreme forces on both sides of Islam who have been waging this war since the seventh century. And what's crept back up again today is is, is this quest for power. And we've got it on the Shia side with the Iranians and Hezbollah, and we've got it on the Sunni side with Islamic State, Jabhat al-Nusra, and all the numerous little factions of al-Qaeda that go across northern Africa. So you, you see this, right. it's not a struggle for religion, it seems anymore, uh, as for who is the rightful, has the rightful path, you know, for, for Islam, but it's a struggle for power. It's a struggle that's to why, take right? non-states and, and gain, gain control over them. 
That's why I mentioned dirty politics. <laughs> yeah. You know, I'm just I'm just using the the polite term for it. Uh, you know, at the end of the day, just like uh, how we mentioned earlier, that I am Catholic school educated. You know, just like in Christianity, there was the schism, the divide. Same in Islam, it has to do with politics. It was about who would be the correct leader uh, to lead the the Khalifa or the Islamic world. You know, is it the Sunni leader or the Shia leader? And this has gone down throughout the centuries. So it really, at the end of the day, it goes to, well, let's ask this really important question. How was ISIS created? How was Al-Qaeda created? How was the Taliban created? Um, do you really think, I want to ask you, Mike, this is a really important question. Do you really think that ISIS is the true enemy or does it go back to the Cold War where the United States and the Soviet Union had that power struggle? And uh, when, when the Soviets invaded Afghanistan, since you've lived there, you reside there, you've experienced with the people. Yeah, I've been to their old officers club. I know. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, we've we've trained the ANA, we've trained the Pakistani army as well. So these two countries, um, you know, mind you, Pakistan is about 70 years old and Afghanistan is thousands of years old. You have a nation of, uh, of, uh, of people that are, that warrior DNA is embedded in them. And, you know, anytime they've been invaded, they have always defeated. The invaders, where, where it goes back to Alexander the Great and uh, Genghis Khan and whatnot, we're just we're just people that have always fought against the invaders. So now you have, uh, you know, the Soviets back in '79 invading Afghanistan, and the Taliban were previously Mujahideen, the, the freedom fighters that were trained by by us. So it really goes back to, like I, I mentioned earlier, it goes back to politics. It goes back to economics as well, survival of the richest, survival of the fittest. And I think till this day, now we have uh, the situation with uh, Russia, with Putin, with the claims of uh, Russia's involvement with the, the elections and the hacking and whatnot. Russia is working with Assad in Syria. So I really feel like it, it's kind of history is repeating itself. I think you're absolutely right. And I'm probably going to make a lot of enemies for saying this. But if you go back and you mentioned the Cold War, everything <laughs> we've done post-World War II, from the conflict in Korea to Vietnam to opposing the Russians in Afghanistan uh, the way we've done, and, and now potentially opposing the Russians, although I don't know exactly what side we're on in Syria because I don't think either administration has provided a clear definition of of what, what our mission is or what we're doing. But if you if you look at just the, and I, I will stay off of the topic that I like to go on a rant on uh, of the last 10 years in Northern Africa, but we have a, a great, great track record of being able to go in and utilize indigenous forces to overthrow a government. We have an awful Absolutely. track record of fixing that after we have taken, taken a leader out of power and establishing what we believe to be as the right form of government that works really here, not even really well, uh, if, you, if you look at it, but it seems it seems to work for the majority of the people. When you try to right. transplant that and put it somewhere else, we have failed at it all over the world. Uh, and I'll, I'll go back a little bit further there. I, I'm teaching you on the Vietnam War right now. We trained Ho Chi Minh. We trained Ho Chi Minh in the fifties. Right. Yeah. Right. As as they were trying to to separate from French colonialism, colonialism, uh, the United States and the British went in there and trained Ho Chi Minh. It, it's is that 
is that very much different than what we did to Osama bin Laden? Uh, is it, you know, no. making the Taliban uh, as strong as they were against the Russians? I don't think so. Right. I just think that, again, we're, we're going to circle back to history. If you look at, at the past through a lens of how it affects the present, how it can potentially affect the future, you have, you have the ability to predict and then maybe influence policy. The problem that I see, as it ha and I've worked in policy in the Pentagon as well, the, the problem that I see with, with policy is that it, it goes after the 50-meter target. Very seldomly do we look 25, 30, 50 years down the road in what we're going to be, because we're, we've got this great aspect of military power that we can occupy and help people maintain their security as long as we have the support of our own population. And, and as we've seen, we've seen it in Vietnam, we've seen it here in the, in, in the wars that we've got in Iraq and Afghanistan. The United States population has about a 10-year lifeline, life right? After that 10 years, it really, really deteriorates. And once you lose the popular support at home, it becomes very, very difficult to enforce policy with military solutions worldwide. And again, I loved working within the State Department when I had the chance to do that in Lebanon. I think that our, our stateies are fantastic people. But we don't have a whole lot of success in turbulent areas in the world when we use that as the sole option. Right, I agree with you 100 percent. And unfortunately, going back to our local, our, our, I mean, the United States government versus our civilians are, our, let me use the correct terminology, <laughs> American citizens. Um, the sad thing is, is that there's a lot of people living in their bubbles. Just to answer you regarding getting support from the American public, you know, as I mentioned earlier, history seems to keep repeating itself uh, regarding Vietnam. And uh, now uh, we have a situation where Syria is sort of resembling our um, exposure with Iraq and Afghanistan where we had we were dealing with with al-qaeda under president bush and prior to that you know afghanistan with uh, the soviets invading during the cold war so with with uh, with iraq and syria there's that common um bond quote unquote with uh, al-qaeda developing into isis and uh, the military is a little bit confused, I, I believe, from my personal opinion, are we going, are we staying, what's what's going to happen? And just, uh, you know, with this whole chemical attack that just happened in Idlib, Syria, and prior to that, what was going on with Aleppo, I was really surprised, pleasantly, actually, uh, that President Trump decided that he is going to um, speak with uh, General uh, Mattis, which we all, who we all love, and with the Pentagon to see what are our options in uh, trying to, quote unquote, dethrone dictator Assad, which makes me very happy because whenever children are murdered, there needs to be a resolution absolutely immediately. And uh, Trump has, uh, you know, blamed Obama for, for this policy failure with this conflict in Syria. But whatever the case is, he's inherited this, this problem and something needs to be done immediately. As you all know that we already have troops over there in Syria and uh, we are uh, funding the rebels to try to fight ISIS. And then you have Russia working with, with, you have Putin working with Syria, with Assad, 
also. So, so there's, there's that conflict again, and it goes back to, it really resembles what's going on with what happened with the Cold War. So, Mike, if you could just, uh, you know, tell, tell me what do you think about that? I think, first of all, addressing President Trump's comments in the past couple of days, first, he sounded, he resembled President Obama in his first couple of years to me, uh, right. p- playing blame without providing a strategy. Uh, and it's not surprising uh, because I've had this conversation amongst my fellow teachers um, who are generally cut from a little bit different background than I am. But on a lot of things like this, we, we tend to agree in, in the approach to it. There is no good solution to what's going on in Syria. Uh, if, if you use some of the examples that I, I, I talked about, I, I wasn't going to go into Northern Africa, but if you look at, we removed dictators in, in Tunisia, we removed dictators in, in Libya, we removed dictators in Egypt with the Arab Spring, we did it with Saddam Hussein in Iraq, we, we did it with the Taliban, and we have not been successful at setting the conditions for success in those countries in the aftermath. A long term, yep, absolutely. So, so to say simply removing Bashar al-Assad, who is ruling in the same way that his father did in the 50s and 60s, it makes people happy because the things that we're seeing on on television, the videos of children being gassed are awful, they're terrible. But without having that long-term solution, I think that it's 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 very dangerous that we will get another radical Sunni extremist leadership that, that's gonna come out of the out of the masses there. And that would make it even more tumultuous for the region, realizing that we have over a million Syrian refugees in Lebanon. Uh, the only seem to be functioning multi-ethnic government in the region. Jordan wants to fight against ISIS uh, as a Sunni country, which is taking the lead over there. Iran is heavily involved in what's going to happen, what's going to what's going to be the outcome of Syria, uh, and and obviously both Hezbollah from Iran and from Lebanon are heavily involved in what's going on there. Uh, you mentioned the the Russian connection. Well, they've got an economic yep. connection and they've got uh, a resource connection with with oil coming from Syria to Russia. So I, I think I think that you know, in their own economic interests is what they're they're leaning toward, and that's what Putin is interested is in maintaining what he has in Russia, right? Or more than being humanitarian in nature, where that's where you usually see the United States coming in in recent, at least post the, the Bill Clinton era forward. I think you see a lot more of these humanitarian type things. We have to stop the bad people, and, and I, I think. Again, I'm rambling. There's no good answer, Sammy. <laughs> um, I, what, what do yeah. we do? What happens? <laughs> I, I had a. I woke up in a dream the other night thinking that uh, I just heard on the news that we were going to put 12 to 15 strategic small nuclear weapons against ISIS. I, I, coming out of a Korean debate, MacArthur Truman, I, I, you know, I'm talking about the the, the Korean uh, nuclear weapons proposal at that time, and I, I just dreamed about it in Syria as something President Trump may put forward because he's talked about using nuclear weapons in the past. Putin has also well, in the past couple of years talked might, about that. Mm-hmm. You, you might be psychic after all. <laughs> I, I don't I don't know, but but I think that if we do that and then there are Russian advisors harmed, if Russia did that and harmed, you know, U.S. Uh, advisors on the ground, and I'll refrain from naming specific types of units, but we both have advisors on the ground uh, advising rebel groups, and and I think and and the Russians advising probably some rebel groups and and the Syrian army. But I, I think that if that happens, right. you're setting the stage, as you said, for potentially where we were in the late 70s and early 80s in Afghanistan. And and at the time, the types of activities we, we did um, because of mutually assured destruction of atomic weapons uh, and because of some pretty, I think, level-headed people at the heads of both of those governments, not like we have right now, 
But but I think that we use very, very subversive methods to fight each other. Yeah, it was a proxy war between America and the Soviet Union. I've said often that this Syrian conflict is a proxy war between Saudi Arabia and Iran, but it's much more, as you point out, Sammy, resembling uh, that Cold War conflict we had going on in the Soviet Union in Afghanistan. And I, I think we came out of that one okay, but we did create the conditions on the ground for some really bad things to happen. You know, before all that, Afghanistan was a fantastic Western country. Right. My grandmother, my my grandmother's sisters, they all went to university. My great grandmother. I mean, they all were educated women. And right. now it's difficult for even an elementary school child to go to school without the Taliban threatening that status. Unfortunately, that's just how things are right now. And that has to do with the repercussions of war. I, I truly believe that Trump needs to sit down with Putin, <laughs> whatever, regardless, whatever kind of uh, connection or friendship, whatever that the media is portraying, it doesn't matter. Uh, we cannot afford another proxy war like we had in Afghanistan in the 80s. It just, it brought about too much death and there was no resolution. And you see now 40 years later, there's still repercussions. This is just, it's, it's heartbreaking. For me, it's all about the children at the end of the day. And uh, I mean, going back to what's going on with, uh, I like to call him dictator, Assad, because that's really what he is. I could care less about his father at the end of the day, what he did for the country. When I lived in Lebanon that, that entire year, I was there back in 2003. There were was, there was so many Syrians that were living in Lebanon because it was just too dangerous. And I was able to go into Damascus for a day. And uh, it, it was already back in 2003, chaos. So now 10 years plus, you know, forward, you have um, Russia and Assad in cahoots with each other and with Iran. Um, and then you have the U.S. Army, the U.S. government working with the Syrian Kurds in the north, and then also with the anti-Assad rebels elsewhere. So it's a situation where it's just such a such a chaotic situation in a tiny little country, as you know, living in Lebanon, how small Lebanon is. Imagine that Syria is half its size. And then you have Turkey also with their involvement as well. So it's just, it's just a repetition of what has happened throughout history with Afghanistan and then prior to that with Vietnam. And uh, it's, it's what can we do now on a different context? What can we do now to, to actually have a successful resolution so that 30 to 40 years from now, we don't have another Afghanistan situation where a once modern westernized nation has gone back to the Middle Ages. You know, when you start thinking about some of the historical aspects that you guys have both brought to the table here, most of the people in America are probably not as educated as you guys are on these historical facts or movements of factions and stuff within these countries. And so they're hearing a lot of what's portrayed within the media. And one of those things, of course, hitting us today in America is the travel ban. So we have this whole ban of different countries and people are very concerned about people of uh, Islamic religion. And we talked about, of course, how this is not about the religious side of it, but we're having that effect here within America. And I'm curious to get you guys' thought on the whole travel ban and some of the concerns that you have about just that. So like I mentioned earlier, Robert and Mike, my parents immigrated in the 70s, in the early 70s. They came here as international students. 
and they are basically the epitome of the American dream. They came here with nothing. They both received the highest quality education and they have contributed to American society. My father is my hero. My father came with nothing, like I mentioned, and worked very hard to make a success of himself. And I feel like the best answer to immigration is assimilation. When you, when you immigrate to this country, this is your new home. And it actually says, it actually says in uh, the Quran, it actually says whenever in Hadith as well, which is um, sort of guidance for Muslims, that when you do immigrate to a new land and that becomes your home, you should assimilate. Unfortunately, just as the American population, just as uh, you have a lot of fear due to, to not understanding or maybe ignorance per se, even in Muslim cultures, these immigrants who have come over, there's fear as well. I mean, I am Catholic school educated <laughs> and I went to Islamic school as well. I had religion stuffed down my throat because my father feared that his children would end up, quote unquote, westernized to the point where, you know, dating and boyfriends and all that. And I actually did not have that upbringing. My, my parents were very strict and, uh, you know, I actually do... I hate to say this, I'm not married <laughs> till this day because of my, you know, I'm constantly traveling, I'm constantly, I'm working all the time and I have never been able to settle down. So I, I do believe that assimilation is key for immigrants and this travel ban, unfortunately, um, President Trump's EO did, you know, include it, all the countries that are of, of Muslim of the Muslim religion. I mean, are they targeting Muslims per se when they said that only Christians are allowed versus uh, the Muslims that are going through the same experience? And as I mentioned earlier, ISIS has killed more people of the Islamic faith than other religions. You know, I can't really comment on that because uh, you can say yes and you can say no. There's, there's. I think the no has to go with ignorance and his advisors, as I mentioned when I have been on different um, shows uh, talking about this subject, that I think it really has to do with who's advising him and their experience and their knowledge and expertise, which is why it's really important like for people like Mike to be involved in the government and to continue to... Um, you know, teach his knowledge that we all need. We all need to know. I have several notes that I want to get to really quick. First of all, to, to jump on the bandwagon of assimilation, people didn't come to the United States and immediately assimilate. Uh, that's why we have Chinatown. That's why we have uh, Irish villages in Boston. That, that's why we have these these little communities that of, of like-minded people who have the same heritage, the same religion, uh, they eat the same foods that have kind of grown together. And yes, over the course of many, many years, they have become more and more westernized or Americanized. The difference is most of those people are already Anglo-European. So we had a lot in common with them. When you, when you approach that to somebody who's very different in upbringing and from a different region of the world, uh, there's, there's this fear that comes with it that is, I think, unnatural, but I, I understand in the, in the present day the way it is. I, I would say that this is not unlike the internment of Japanese Americans during World War II. Mm. It is not unlike the persecution of socialists as communists 
through the McCarthy era during the Cold War in the United States. Right. It's not unlike those type of phobias that get whipped up in in kind of American uh, life under the term of patriotic Americans. Uh, and, and I think it's it's very it's dangerous to do that, to assume that all of a population are one way because a portion of the population. Now, I realize that this portion of the Islamic population we're talking about is very, very big and that they have posed a very real threat worldwide and in the United States. So we have to be careful. I'll kind of segue that into the travel ban because that's the question you originally asked. I think that the travel ban is freaking crazy. And you can leave my words in there. I, I, I think to, to say that we're going to pick specific countries that are only Islamic in nature and say that that's not why. Oh, and by the way, the president has left out countries that he right. has business interests in uh, that are you. also Islamic countries. Uh, but, right. but the ones that we are picking are dangerous. They are ungoverned uh, in general. And, oh, kind of a caveat, I'd have no business interest there that will be hurt if I stop the travel ban. And, and I'm, not, I'm not faulting one way or the other. I just think that to to uniformly lay a blanket down and say we're not going to accept refugees from this country is or any anybody traveling from this country is kind of a it's kind of juvenile. Now, having worked within the State Department and seeing how hard it is to get visas for refugee status, it takes years of vetting. Right. People come into Lebanon without any identification, uh, without passports, and and right now we're still and trying to get through the group well. of people that are Iraqis. Uh, that 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 are, are Iraqi refugees because of us going into Iraq and, and fighting a war. Um, when those people are vetted, I, I mean, they do legitimate background investigations like they do on us, Robert, to get our clearances. They investigate their associations with people. Uh, it is very easy to get a tourist visa, a student visa, a work visa to come into the United States in any port. It is very difficult to get a refugee visa. I'm not saying open the floodgates and let everybody in, but I'm saying let's follow the procedures that we've had in place that have kept us safe from refugees for this long, realizing that no refugee has committed a terrorist attack inside of the United States. The people who did were here on other types of visas. I would like to mention quickly that the people who did had affiliation with Saudi Arabia, and the, Saudi Arabia is the father of Wahhabism. Wahhabism has been the main financer of terrorism and terrorist ideologies. In we could do a whole country. show on Wahhabis. We could do absolutely. a whole show on Wahhabis. Good. We absolutely need to because that right there will make people understand why this whole situation is occurring. Where is ISIS coming from? Where is the Taliban coming from? Where is Al-Qaeda coming from? Why are they still being sponsored? Where is their finances coming from? It's not coming from Syria. It's not coming from Lebanon. It's not coming from Iraq. It's not coming from Afghanistan. It's not coming from any of the seven nations that were put on the travel ban. Uh, it's coming from Saudi Arabia. And again, proxy war, Saudi Arabia and Iran. Two more points. So you mentioned, Sammy mentioned the Quran and, and how uh, the Quran and the Hadith says that you should embrace assimilation in a new country that you live in. That's very, very true. Uh, I've read the Quran. Most people in America that I know have not read the Quran. Um, but right. the, the one thing, and I, I worked on a, a conference with some people in the FBI who were fighting Islamic extremism within the United States and, and, and abroad. Um, and this one individual that I met told me something that I, I really hadn't grasped and I didn't, I should have. Many of these people that we're talking about who have gravitated toward extremism cannot read and write in their own language. Many Western Muslims do not read 
in the language that the Quran is written in. So they rely on translations from people who are teaching them. Uh, this is what it happens. goes back to the Bible. It's the same thing with the Bible, with my experience with Catholic school, that the Bible, just like the Quran, is open to interpretation. Now, I'm not of the Arab race. I do not speak Arabic like a native does. I speak enough to get by from my living in these Middle Eastern countries and having learned the language. At the end of the day, you know, it's about your interpretation and also your personal relationship with the higher power, whatever, whoever you believe in. So I really, truly believe in that a lot of these madrasas, these, these Islamic schools, you know, that are funded from, we have to check their funding. We have to check where the, the finances are coming from. Uh, that, that right there is very crucial because um, some of these Wahhabists are funding these Islamic schools, not just in the United States, but abroad. And that's where this brainwashing is coming from. If we stop that, we will stop a lot of these recruits from joining. Yeah, that's right. And that my, my, my friend in the FBI that I, I did this conference with uh, a few years ago, he had been brainwashed in a madrasa in Canada. And he did not speak Arabic. He did not read Arabic. And he, he didn't even read the Quran translated in English. He listened to what this cleric was teaching him. And he wanted to go and wage jihad. So the best way that he found to do this was to move to Yemen and, and to become a become a jihadi himself. And he, he went over there and he found a cleric and he, and he told him this. And thankfully, this cleric was very, very progressive and taught him first to read and then to interpret the Quran and, well, and well, not Yemen just telling is, him what it means. Right. And well, Yemen is being bombed out of its <laughs> to oblivion by, by Saudi Arabia. So so that's a you know something that the Yemenis should really take heed to that uh, Wahhabism is is evil. At the end of the day, I um, I am a practicing Muslim, and I do do my five time prayers. I even do the nightly prayers on top of that, which is called the Hajjud. And at the I'm I am American. I'm a proud American. I have assimilated into the culture, and it has to do with education and knowledge, and. People who live in bubbles, whether they are Christian, Muslim, Jewish, doesn't matter what religion, doesn't matter what race, doesn't matter what nationality, this is where ignorance will continue to prevail. That's why education is very important, and that's why we need we need more of these podcasts to happen. We need more of these seminars and whatnot from the FBI, from the CIA, yourself being an analyst or a consultant to the government. That's how our president will continue to receive knowledge and other military and government personnel as well. Thoroughly enjoyed this conversation. Robert, I hope you can edit it and make it make it really, really good with everything because we went on topic to topic. I'd love to do this again sometime. I think that you are a, a fantastic, smart, intelligent, educated Muslim woman. And I love having this type of conversation open about religion, yeah. open about policy, and and how how we are engaging worldwide. Robert, I think we're going to make some enemies with this. Of people who listen to it in the military, our military community won't all agree with us. Uh, and last, President Trump, if you're listening, I'm available. I'm free. You don't have to pay me. Uh, you have to listen, listen, listen. I have advised people much smarter than you. <laughs> uh, we'll definitely have to do it. At the end of the day, I'm still serving, and he is. <laughs> I have to say, he is my commander in chief because I'm still in. 
and I'm not planning on leaving anytime soon. I absolutely love being in the military. It's embedded in my DNA, like I said, I mentioned earlier. But it is really, really, really important. Knowledge is power. And yes, please, President Trump, you need to call up Mike. Well, we'll make sure that we get three of us back on or maybe even some of the other hosts and do this again as a part two segment because I think there's still a lot more that we can cover in terms of not only trying to educate, I think that's part of the mentoring aspect of it as well and coaching is to help people understand different cultures and different backgrounds and stuff like that. So uh, we'll definitely have to do this again, Sammy, if you're open to it. Absolutely. Thank you for listening to our podcast. You can follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and at Facebook by searching at Mentors, the number four M-I-L, and please subscribe to our podcast. It's free, and it ensures you're the first to hear our latest podcast show. We have several options depending upon your device, and we're at iTunes, SoundCloud, at Stitcher, and at TuneIn Radio. Hello, everyone. This is Robert. I personally love my Skeleton Optic sunglasses. This is a veteran-owned company that creates Italian handcrafted frames and Zeiss lens. Go over there and take advantage of their 10% discount that they're offering all of our listeners by using the code Mentors the Number Four MIL. Again, that's Mentors the Number Four MIL to get your 10% discount at SkeletonOptics.com.